Some people slide. Some people pound the ground. Some people, they just sashay. Some people, they waddle. How do you walk? How do you walk? Walking is the physical activity that people participate in more than any other. You know, psychologists say that every person has their own PMP, or their primary movement pattern. Apparently, the way you walk reveals a great deal about yourself. A stride means self-confidence. A shuffle, that belongs to a more timid person. A swagger, that indicates a big ego. Your walking style reveals your personality. Apparently, our gait is a gateway into our soul. And Paul would agree. This is what Paul stresses to the Thessalonians in this morning's text. In the first half of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul describes how we ought to walk. He sounds like Aerosmith. He sings, walk this way. Of course, when the Bible talks about a believer's walk, it's speaking figuratively. You know, God isn't concerned with our primary movement pattern whether we strut or shuffle. No, God cares about our lifestyle, our conduct. This is what Paul means by the word walk, how we live our lives, how we order and arrange our lives. You see, Paul was in Thessalonica just a short three weeks. Then he was bullied out of town. During his stay, though, he conveyed many important truths to these Thessalonians. Now he writes them a letter to reaffirm what he had taught. And he stresses their lifestyle. He's saying to the Christians both then and now, this is how we roll. This is how we roll as Christians. Paul begins chapter 4. Finally then, brethren. And here's an important observation if you're sort of new to church. Never slip your shoes back on just because the pastor says finally. It seems here Paul is sort of winding his thoughts down, but he's less than halfway through his letter. You never know when a pastor is going to catch a second wind. Actually, I think it was the subject matter here in chapter 4 that recharged Paul. He writes, We urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Now You know the Christian life, it begins with a step of faith. We open up our hearts. We ask for God's forgiveness. We turn our lives over to Jesus. But that initial step is followed by a walk. Following Jesus involves more than just a single step. You don't just take a first step and stop. No, you keep putting one foot in front of the other. You put together a string of steps. You see, the Christian life consists of successive steps of faith. Living for Jesus is a journey. It's a lifestyle. It impacts every, our conduct in every area of our lives. Now notice Paul urges and he exhorts the Thessalonians to abound more and more. You know, though they, though they had made great strides in a short period of time, he wanted them to realize that they had further to go. I hope you know that none of us will ever realize a fully developed walk in this lifetime. There's always room for us to grow. You know, I always ask myself, 
does my life look more like Jesus this year than last year? I say it so often because it's so true. Living the Christian life is like climbing up a sliding board in your socks. Ever tried it? I mean, you're either moving forward or you're sliding backward, but you're never standing still. You're either increasing or backsliding. Well, obviously, Paul is deeply concerned about these Thessalonians. He uses here terms full of intensity. He doesn't just suggest. He urges and exhorts. And then notice how he frames what he's about to say in verse 2. He says, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Paul is saying, this isn't just my opinion. These aren't just my suggestions. These are commandments that were given to us through our Lord Jesus. Now let me emphasize, Jesus cares about how you live your life. He cares about the details of your life. It doesn't just matter to him that your soul is saved and that you're warming a pew. No, how you conduct yourself, how you move through this world matters to Jesus. This is why Paul tells us how to walk in a way that pleases Jesus. Now notice Paul had communicated these truths to the Thessalonians before. Since then, though, their situation had changed. And he wanted to make sure that the changes in their circumstances hadn't altered their commitment. You know, sometimes this can happen to us. Oh, we pledge our lives to Jesus, but then something happens. We meet a girl, or we start a new hobby, or we get another job. Different circumstances can now make it harder to please Jesus. It's possible that our devotion might wane. Paul is concerned that this might have happened to the Thessalonians. That's why he's writing to them about these truths. Again, he's repeating what he's taught them. You know, last week we talked about the pressure that these new believers were under. Their situation had changed. These were wartime babies. They were new to the faith, and their salvation had been accompanied by persecution. They had been afflicted right after they got saved. Suddenly, persecution had come. During Paul's brief stay in Thessalonica, he had communicated to them how they should live. But then, angry opposition raised its ugly head. Paul was forced out of town. The giddiness of the new believers and the optimism of their new church was replaced by the grittiness of spiritual warfare. I like this quote by that famed theologian, Mike Tyson. He says, everybody has a game plan until they get punched. Isn't that the truth? Everybody's got a game plan until you get punched. It was easy for the Thessalonians to embrace Christianity's game plan while life was good. But now that they've been punched, Paul wants to make sure that they're still committed to a lifestyle that pleases Jesus. He says in verse 3, he writes to them, For this is the will of God. Now I've never met a serious Christian who didn't desire to know God's will for their life. Do you want to know God's will for your life? Of course you do. We're always asking, where should I go to college? Who should I marry? What job should I take? Where should I live? What church should I attend? I mean, we want to know God's will in these matters. But these are just the peripheral issues. Understand, God's chief concern for your life isn't just where you live or what you do or where you go or even who you live with. It's how you conduct yourself along the way. 
You see, God cares about how we roll. God's will involves our character and our integrity and our purity. In a word, God sums up His will for our lives. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Well, what a big word. Understand the Greek word translated sanctification is hagios. It means to set apart or to dedicate or to reserve for someone's use. A sanctified life is a life reserved for Jesus. It's a body and it's a mind and it's a soul that's been put on hold for His use and for His purpose. Before I think a thought, before I do a deed, before I set a course, I make the decision that my one and only life, all that I am, belongs to Jesus. I reserve my life, my body and mind for Jesus. And then everything else I pursue, every other decision is filtered through that commitment. You know, life is all about decisions. The choices I make end up shaping me into the person I become. Thus, sanctification is the process of making one God-pleasing choice after another, after another. It's stringing together a lot of good choices. Let me say, if you're still struggling over whether you want to do what pleases Jesus, or whether you want to do what pleases you, or whether you want to do what pleases somebody else for that matter, you need to settle this issue. You really do. I assure you, if you want to live a lifestyle that pleases Jesus, there will be times when you'll need to deny what pleases you. You'll also rub other people the wrong way. It's just inevitable. You can count on it. We're going to discover in this morning's text that how the world rolls and how the Christian rolls, boy, they're radically different. That's why you need to decide now who you want to please. C.S. Lewis, he made an interesting observation. He said, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other, mean, the other kind of creature means madness and horror and idiocy and rage and impotence and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to one state or the other. Here's what he's saying. Whether you end up in heaven or whether you end up in hell, wherever you end up, you're going to belong there. By the time you get there, you're going to belong there. For all along the way, you're preparing yourself. For your final destination by the choices you are making right now. In a sense, you get to heaven or hell long before you get there. 
by either becoming more heavenly or becoming more hellish. Well, sanctification is the process of becoming more heavenly by making Christian choices step by step by step. And this is God's will for you. Rather than please the world, God wants you and I to please Jesus. It's how we roll. And sanctification doesn't just involve what we do at church or at work or at school in these public spheres. No, it even involves what happens in our bedroom. You see, sanctification gets very personal. It involves the most private, intimate parts of our lives. It's not just what we do on the street, but it's what we do between the sheets. Now, Paul follows up the mention of our sanctification with a command. He says that you abstain from sexual immorality. So here's God's, word, will, here's God's will for your life. Here's how you can please Jesus. By maintaining sexual purity. The Greek word that Paul uses here in the original language for sexual immorality is pornea. It's the word from which we get our word pornography. This was a blanket term that covered all forms of sexual sin. Hooking up and shacking up and friends with benefits and booty calls and oral sex and strip clubs and pornography, etc., etc. Any sexual contact outside marriage was pornea or sexual immorality. Now, now understand, please understand, the Bible presents sex as a positive, pleasurable, beautiful, liberating, deeply spiritual experience. It's wonderful. God created it. Proverbs 5 verse 19 is one of my memory verses. Let her breath satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured by her love. That's good. I'm obedient. I've, I've memorized that verse. I quote it often. But the her there is speaking of my wife, not my neighbor. Not my secretary. It's speaking of my wife. You see, the Bible gives wide latitude to sexual expression in marriage. Hebrews 13 verse 4 puts it, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. In other words, as long as it's agreeable to both partners, hey, anything goes. God created sexy. Never forget it. And He wants us to enjoy it to the fullest within marriage. But Hebrews continues, Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Today the buzzword is safe sex. But understand, God's word says, save sex. Sex is a gift from God. And its giver knows how to keep it special. How to keep it precious. He doesn't want us to ruin it like we do everything else in our lives. He says, reserve it for marriage. Abstaining from sexual immorality is our sanctification. This is why Paul tells us in verse 4, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust 
like the Gentiles who do not know God. See, today's contemporary attitude towards sex is that it's nothing more than a bodily function. Oh, it's like brushing your teeth or eating pizza. It's just basic recreation. In 2007, researchers at the University of Texas, they asked 2,000 people why they had sex. They got plenty of answers. 237 to be exact. Most of the answers you would expect. I was attracted, or it felt good, or it was fun. But there were other reasons stated for why they had sex that you don't expect. One person wrote, to boost my social status. To get a raise. To return a favor. Someone dared me. I lost a bet. It seemed like good exercise. Good exercise. Trust me, a stationary bike or a treadmill is a lot less complicated, friend. And yet, this is what's happened in our society to sexual activity. It's no longer an expression of intimacy. It's now a workout or a dare or a payback. God intended it to be infinitely more. Don't you want it to be more? We've become a society that doesn't know God. And when that happens, sex loses its specialness, its sanctity. It's ironic, but America has more self-proclaimed Christians than any other country in the world. But apparently our Christianity hasn't really translated into our bedroom. In the year 2005, for the first time in our country's history, America had more unmarried coupled households than married coupled households. If you live in a traditional marriage today, you're now in the minority. You're outnumbered by unmarried, cohabitating couples by a fraction. And how quickly the tide has shifted. In 1970, there were just half a million unmarried couples living together. Today, that number has skyrocketed to 55.8 million. We hear these statistics and we're tempted to say, well, hey, Sandy, everybody else is doing it. What's the big deal? Well, make no mistake about it. To Jesus, it's a big deal. Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians in a day much worse than ours. I mean, today's sexual mores and attitudes may be far more permissive than they were in the 1940s and the 1950s. But modern times barely rival the decadent days of Paul in first century Rome. I mean, there was no such thing in Paul's day of sexual morality. No prostitution and adultery and divorce. They were commonplace. Even homosexuality ran rampant in Rome. Caesars and senators, they tired of heterosexual sex and they sought diverse thrills through perverse pleasure. Not even Roman religion supported sexual morality. Pagan temples were often financed by priestesses turned prostitutes. Girls would pour out of the temple into the streets at night and they would turn tricks to raise money for their temple. The philosopher Demosthenes, he reflected the male sentiment throughout the Greco-Roman world. He said, we keep harlots for pleasure, female slaves for our daily care, and wives to give us legitimate children and be the guardians of our households. 
I mean, chastity was unheard of in Paul's day. Which reminds me of the mother. She set her teenage daughter down and she lectured the girl on the virtues of remaining chaste. The young girl replied, well, mom, I'd rather do the chasing than be chaste. Supposed to be a joke. But according to Paul, that's not the attitude that pleases Jesus. Paul expected very little from the Gentiles who don't know God. He knew they were without God's wisdom. That they were without a view of eternity. That they were without a love for others. They were without a respect for a woman's dignity. They were without an awareness of the soul and the spirit. They were without the reason they were created. The Gentiles who didn't know God, they were left in the dark to live by impulse. To just live like an animal. So many people today, they they live the same existence, like a mud on the street. They, They just do whatever feels good or tastes good or looks good. They just do it. This might be how the world rolls, but this is not how the Christian rolls. Christians should know better Paul tells us in verse 4 that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Did you know that your body is a vessel? You are a container for the Holy Spirit. Here is the greatest privilege known on earth that you can contain God. This is mind-boggling. It's like God wrapping up a diamond in a crumpled up newspaper or putting his treasure in a brown paper sack. But you and I are vessels that contain God. The Holy Spirit lives in us and moves through us. And this is how a Christian possesses his own vessel and controls his passions by walking in the Spirit. Paul writes in Galatians 5 verse 16, Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's the triumph of a greater affection. That's what it is. When you possess the love of Jesus, you start to gain some self-control. Temptation no longer has free reign over you. You have access to a power greater than that temptation. But the Spirit feels only what's been sanctified. Understand this, until you've reserved your body and mind and soul to Jesus, the Spirit isn't going to fill you. Not until you're sanctified. You've got to be on reserve for Jesus. I mean, think about it. Why would He fill up a person whose goal is His own selfishness? And here's another reason to abstain from sexual immorality. Verse 6. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. To defraud means to cheat. Sexual sin is cheating. You're a cheater. You're cheating on God and on your spouse. You know, even if you're not married and you're having sex, you're still cheating on your future spouse. You don't love them enough to wait. You're also cheating on the kids who trust you and the friends who look up to you. And the church that heard you take that vow and the government that gave you the license and the culture that depends on people keeping their word. You even cheat on the... When you, 
You even cheated the spouse of the cheater you cheated with. In Leviticus 18, God lays out laws for sexual relations. For example, verse 8 of Leviticus 18 forbids a man to have sex with his stepmom. That's a good thing. But in doing so, God uses some real interesting language. Notice this. He says, The nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. Notice the implication. A wife's nakedness belongs only to her husband. Kathy's nakedness is mine, baby. It belongs only to me. In fact, it no longer belongs to her. She's given it to her husband. That, that logic only works so far in my marriage. I, it's true, though. Her nakedness no longer belongs to her, it belongs to me. That means that if she uncovers her nakedness before someone else, or if someone else takes her and uncovers her nakedness, it's nothing short of stealing. You're taking my nakedness. Only your spouse has access to your nakedness. Now this really helps us understand sexual immorality. At its heart, it's nothing but thievery. It's stealing. You're selfishly carjacking what doesn't belong to you. There used to be a beer commercial. <laughs> I hate using beer commercials as illustrations. But there used to be this beer commercial, and it broke my heart. It didn't really last long. Apparently, it was an attempt at humor that must have hit too close to home. The camera, though, was outside this sleazy hotel, the site of a one-night stand. You can only hear the voices of the couple inside the hotel room, but their voices tell the story. The compromised couple are apparently through with their moment of pleasure when the woman asks, So you have nothing to say? The emptiness in her voice wants you to believe that she means something to this man she's just given herself to. He responds curtly, No. She begs for the slightest affirmation. You have nothing to say to me? With a smirk in his voice, he replies, Sorry. She snaps back, Fine. Now, I really can't recall the point of the ad. But the scene is so tragic and so common. A woman gives herself to a man without any, without any commitment on his part, without, without a commitment of marriage. She just gives herself to this man. She allows him to use her as an object. She gets used to gratify his base desires. He just uses her up and then throws her away like a greasy paper towel. Hey, Tina Turner can sing all she wants. What's love got to do with it? But the answer is everything. People try to convince themselves that sex is nothing but a physical act, but their heart betrays them. For when the deed is done, they long for love. It's degrading to just simply be used and then discarded. There's no honor in casual sex. In fact, nothing damages our psyche more than allowing ourselves to be taken advantage of. To be chewed up and spit out for someone else's selfish gratification. When you let yourself be victimized... Damage follows. 
You might not see it at the time, but the guilt and the shame begin to build. You see, sex was meant to express love and to reinforce commitment, not to be a means of exploitation. You know, it's no accident that the sexual revolution of the 1960s and the 1970s has spawned a whole generation of adults that suffer from a shattered self-esteem. It's no accident. A young woman, her name was Marie, she left her kids and her husband over an infatuation with the most famous musician of her day, Hungarian composer Franz Liszt. Marie's reckless immorality destroyed her life. And later, while homesick for her kids, Marie confessed, when one has smashed everything around oneself, one has also smashed oneself. Hey, we can justify our immorality in a thousand ways, but it doesn't diminish the cost of our sin. No one can escape the emotional damage. And here's why, verse 6. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. The Lord is the avenger. Sometimes we think sexual sin is harmless, that no one will ever know. That's simply not true. God sees every keystroke. God hears every cell phone conversation. He is the avenger, and there is a price to be paid. Unconfessed sin always takes its toll. Verse 7 sums it up. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Of course, there will always be somebody who will sit back and he'll say, Ah, all this talk about abstaining from sexual immorality. That's just Paul's opinion. That's just Pastor Sandy's interpretation. I don't buy it. Well, you know, actually, Paul saw your little cocky self coming. (laughs) And he anticipates your argument. He heads off all your excuses in verse 8. He says, Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us His Spirit, His Holy Spirit. You know, it's interesting that up against the backdrop of the Greco-Roman world, it was the church's sexual purity that captured the society's attention. Sexual mores were foreign to Gentile thinking. Purity, chastity, fidelity, virginity, were values known only among the followers of Christ. In fact, in the second century, church baptisms included a moral promise. You were baptized into the body of Christ with an expectation of sexual purity. Neither the Jews nor the pagans ever linked spiritual growth with moral purity. Only the Christians. And I think this is the challenge for Christians today, especially Christians in America. You know, if we were in other parts of the world, our greatest assignment might be resisting persecution. Still, there would be places in the world where Christians, their greatest challenge is the confrontation with false doctrine. But I think for us here in America, our most formidable test is abstaining from sexual immorality. This is the big way we can prove our devotion to Jesus. In a world permeated with sexual suggestion, is it really possible to live pure in thought and deed? 
Well, it is. And my confidence doesn't lie in me. It lies in the last line of verse 8. The God who commanded us has also given us the power to obey. He has given us the Holy Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. That's how we roll. And then verse 9, in contrast to sexual lust, Paul adds, but concerning brotherly love. I mean, rather than lust, a Christian should be caught up in love. He says, concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Notice this. Love is not even something Paul felt like he had to mention. God teaches us to love. You know, I don't think it's too strong of a statement to make, but if love is not the instinctive response of your heart, then you must not be a Christian. Rabbits don't have hopping classes. Birds don't enroll in flight school. Fish don't take swimming lessons. I mean, they do swim in schools, but... I mean, some things just come natural. And so it is with the Christian in love. The Spirit of God births in us the love of God. A Christian doesn't have to be taught to love. It comes naturally. We simply remain in God's love. And speaking of love, Paul remarks how the Thessalonians loved the church at large. Verse 10, he says, And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. To love as Christ loves means that we can never love enough. That's why there's always room to grow in love. He says, let's all increase in love. Well, as Christians, here's how we roll. We abstain from sexual immorality. We increase more and more in love. And then Paul encourages us with three more walking styles. Verse 11, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life. In other words, instead of filling up every square inch of your life with noise and activity and outward stimulation, a Christian should create within his life some inner space, some room in his heart. You know, the second half of chapter 4 describes the Christian's journey into outer space. (laughs) It's really cool. And it will be quick. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, We're going to get caught up together with Jesus in the clouds. We're going to talk about it next week. The rapture will be out of this world. But outer space is not our only goal. Right now, we need to be cultivating some inner space. God wants us to live a quiet, uncluttered life. He wants us to leave room for the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit to speak to us. I mean, do you ever just think... Do you ever just take time out to think? To read your Bible and then contemplate what God might want to say to you through what you've read? Do you ever go out and just marvel at a sunset? Or take a walk and look at the leaves? Or pull off the road to watch a deer? Or slip into your toddler's bedroom and pray for their future? I mean, do you ever think about God and about life? And about God's plans for your life? Most of us don't. We just rush through life. The immediate is always robbing us of the important. Anne Morrow, she writes this. We seem so frightened today of being alone that we never let it happen. 
Even if family, friends, movies fail, there is still the radio to fill up the void. Now, instead of planting our solitude with our own dream blossoms, we choke the space with continuous music, clatter, and companionship to which we do not even listen. It is simply there to fill the vacuum. When the noise stops, there is no inner music to take its place. I don't care, but I, I don't know about you, but I am determined to let God play His inner music in my heart. I want to go deep, not just get spread out. You know, most people live shallow lives because they get too spread out. They want it all. They want to do it all and feel it all and taste it all and go everywhere and hear it all. They're so afraid of not getting in on the latest and the greatest that they miss out on what was there all along. God and His truth and His peace and even their family. We're still tempted by the tree of knowledge. We're surfing the net, scanning the channels, browsing the news because something might happen in the world that we don't know about. We lust for knowledge. And just as Adam's bite of the fruit from the tree of knowledge cost him paradise, our curiosity robs us of the quiet life. There was a time when humanity's greatest fear was hell. Then it became uselessness. Then it became a lack of fulfillment. I think though today, most folks' greatest fear is boredom. They're afraid they might end up tonight with nothing to do. Oh, what a shame. My friend David Guzik, he compares the cluttered, noisy life to a religion. He identifies the God that people serve as excitement and entertainment. The priests are the celebrities we follow. The scriptures are the tabloids and sports center. The worship services are movies and concerts and ball games. The temples are the theaters and the stadiums. In fact, every iPad becomes a chapel. I mean, we get seduced into living for the one momentary thrill after another. Life gets reduced to the next fun thing. That's what we live for. That's what life gets boiled down to. We're always looking for the next fun thing. That's all we achieve. Here's the overwhelming question some people ask. Is it fun? They go through life and that's all they ask. Is it fun? Not, is it true? Or is it right? Or is it good? Or is it godly? Or is it loving? No, is it fun? Their whole life is governed by whether or not it's fun. Hey, rather than run from the quiet, God wants us to seek the quiet life. When was the last time you spent the night with your Bible? Rather than a movie, how about a good book? Rather than Facebook a hundred people, why not spend some face time with your kid or your spouse? Or with your God in prayer. As a Christian, here's how we roll. We live a quiet life. And notice what's next. Paul says it. Mind your own business. Did you know that's in the Bible? Mind your own business. I mean, rather than running around telling everybody else how to live their lives, try focusing on your own for a little while. Mind your own business. Don't try to clean up the neighborhood when there's a sewage leak in your front yard. 
You know, if you're maintaining purity and you're increasing in love and you're going deep in your own life, you're not going to have a lot of time left over to stick your nose in everybody else's business. Mind your own business is God's command. And then Paul gives us one more walking style, verses 11 and 12. He says, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. Here's the last thing on his list. Work hard, man. Roll up your shirt sleeves. Don't just run out at 5 o'clock. If there's work to be done, stay and work. Work a little overtime if necessary. Get there a little early. If you, want, if you like your job and want your job. He says, work hard. Hold a job. Be a good witness. Understand, the Greco-Roman world of Paul, the more important you were, the less you worked. Manual labor was hated. It was despised. It was seen as a curse. Work was the occupation of slaves, not Roman citizens. And yet the New Testament sanctified labor and hard work. It made it sacred. It, it considered it a noble duty, pleasing to God. It's been said, Christianity introduced the ancient world to a carpenter king, fishermen, apostles, and tent-making missionaries. It was revolutionary. The New Testament believes in hard work. You see, in a day of militant Christianity, where we're always being encouraged to picket and to protest and to sign petitions and boycott companies and let our congressmen hear our beefs, you know, I think verse 11 really brings a needed balance. I'm afraid that much of our militancy is just adding to the clamor of this world. Christians are often seen as just another of society's special interest groups. People regulate us and dismiss us to the back seat. We get marginalized by focusing on the next day's hot topic. Sadly, modern American Christians are known far more for what we're against then what we're for, what we value, and what we love, that shouldn't be. Too many times we come across pushy rather than winsome. Instead of drawing people to us, our harsh rhetoric pushes people away. Hey, rather than practice our sound bites and try to shout over the opposition's viewpoint and try to bang the louder drum, wouldn't it be nice if we just lived lives to please Jesus? Wow, what a novel idea. Hey, let's just try pleasing Jesus. You know why? For the lifestyle that pleases Jesus is the lifestyle that is going to capture and catch this world's attention. Don't you think we would make a bigger impact on the lost people around us if we emphasized abstaining from sexual morality and walked in purity? What if we increased in love and carved out peaceful, quiet lives for ourselves and paid attention to our own business and then worked hard on our jobs? Oh, I think we could catch a few, turn a few heads. I think we could garner some attention that way. You see, Paul is telling us, this is how a Christian rolls. And I trust this morning, this is how you and I roll. Let's pray together.